Today on Sagittarian Matters, I'm in conversation with Julia Wirtz. But first, some advice. And before that, a note for the squeamish. Put down your fork because I'm about to tell you about hurting myself in a way that might make you barf. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Hello from Los Angeles. I'm almost done with book tour, so I thought I would start a new low-paying slash no-paying career as an alternative stand-up comedian. I heard there were some spots open as every cisgendered man you've ever heard of bites the dust, and I am ready to jump in there. You know, I've been a teacher. I've worked in social justice. I've done organizing. I do a podcast. I do comics. Uh, I've worked with old people. I've done almost every low-paying job you can think of, uh, high-stress, low-pay. So I thought, you know, why not do another one? So I just did a solid five-minute set at an open mic night called Clown Town that is presided over by Michelle T. and Allie Liebegott, friends of the show. It is a no-bro zone for alternative comedy, and I did a set about... The time I cut off a piece of my inner labia while trimming my pubic hair, which I have, which you didn't maybe didn't even know I had any of that, any of the things I just said, but apparently I do or I did at some point. And one time in the not so distant past, I was doing a trim job and then I decided to go rogue, get a stray hair and um, some sharp haircutting scissors cut off a piece of my inner labia a little tiny pink piece of it was on the scissor and um i thought i was gonna die i was like a man in a movie who's been kicked in the nards that was me i got trimmed in the nards and uh it stung and i screamed and i laid on the couch with frozen peas on my vagina for quite a while but you know what it heals fast just like the mouth your nether regions heal pretty fast. I just want to tell you that. Um, the other thing that happened this week is that I, you know I hate Blue Apron. We talk about it every time on the podcast. I fucking hate Blue Apron. I hate hearing my favorite podco- podcast hosts having to talk about like pork with chestnuts or shrimp with peas or whatever gross combination of foods Blue Apron is sending people. Um you know, I don't like that. And so imagine my dismay when I was listening to Two Dope Queens and their newest sponsor is Poopery. So they were talking about the smell of their poop for a while and then talking about whatever tropical fruity scent on top of the smell of their poop. And I wanted to barf. And so I was tweeting about it. I was tweeting, you know, I didn't think I could get any worse than Blue Apron. And then came Poopery. And as I was tweeting this, I was walking down the street at night very fast as I am wont to do. And then I tweeted it. There was a typo. I deleted it. I went to redo. I was revising my tweet and I ran headfirst into a pole very hard. And um, when I ran headfirst into the pole, my glasses flew off. My earbuds popped out of my ears. My phone flew. My notebook that I draw in flew. And then I fell on the ground and yelled, this is so terrible, but also so comedic. Because it was. It just was. Um, I have a, I have like a 
a very small gash on my face from my glasses cutting my face and a little lump on my head and on my knee. And uh, that's all. Okay. I have an advice question to answer and then you can hear about my guest today. But so that's what's going on with me. And that's essentially what I said during my stand up set. And, um, if you want to invite me to do a nervous five minutes for free anywhere, you know, apparently that's my new thing. Okay. Here's my advice question from someone. Dear Nicole, I have a last minute question. What are some good conversational tips for when an acquaintance constantly drops thinly veiled gossipy negs every time you try to chat with her? Like, you don't want to cut her out because she's a regular at your main morning meeting and it would just be way too awkward. But every time you try and get in there for a brisk, sweet, hey honey, how are you? You end up feeling like you're silently co-signing her bitter dirt dishing. Correlated sub-query. What are good tips for the guilt I feel when I have more boundaries on someone than they want? From Wondering in Wisconsin. Dear Wondering in Wisconsin, is this question about me? Are you sending this question to me as a way of asking me to no longer try gossiping with you when I see you at a meeting? If so, I'm sorry. I do love to talk trash. If it's not about me, I have a lot of advice for you. Uh, okay, well, a few things. One thing is, when someone in my life is difficult, and yet I want to keep them in my life, such as Let's say someone I'm related to, um, you know, and they just continually have poor behavior or say things that could could infect me with their kind of negativity or um, I could get my feelings hurt, except, you know, a way for me of accepting them as the person they are is to think of them as if we are living in a sitcom. And so that's just what their character does. I can't expect their character in the sitcom to do anything different than they already do. All I can do is change how I react to it or if I react at all. So, you know, say, you know, say your name's Kathy comes up to you and is like, hey, did you see that girl at the meeting has like camel toe? And then she stood up and, you know, I wanted to say, hey, is your vagina hungry? Um, You know, so say she says that to you and she's like, (laughs) And uh, you don't want to engage. Well, first of all, in your head, you can just imagine the studio audience laughing and going, oh, Kathy, because of course she's going to say something inappropriate and unkind about the people around her because that's her personality. Uh, But what you could do is, I mean, what I would do is just, it's not mean. I don't know if it's icing, but it's kind of just like, I really wasn't looking or I didn't notice that. Hmm. Huh. Just kind of like not feeding the gossip. If she said something to you about camel toe and you were like, oh my God, really? And you fed it, then you were just kind of like throwing gas on the flames of gossip. And so she wants to come to you again because she's going to get a good reaction. But as a gossiper of Christmas past and Christmas yet to come, uh, when I don't feel like gossiping with friends, depending on how good of a friend they are, I've literally said to people like, I don't feel like gossiping right now. I just can't deal. Or you could say, I'm fasting from gossip right now. It's best for me. I get a little too into it. And people will be like, whoa, you've got a problem. Okay. And then, you know, maybe they'll go gossip somewhere else or just yell it into their shoe or their hat. Um, but another thing is when I try to gossip with a friend who's not feeling it, I can tell because they can, they'll just be like, uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I don't really follow their relationship or, um, yeah, I can't really, I don't know. I can't, I have nothing to say about that or can't really talk about that. 
And I love, I love it. I love that kind. It's just, they're not feeding it. It's like you're throwing dirt on the fire instead of gas. Um, so those are a couple tips is like, A, accept this person for who she is by just imagining her as a character from a sitcom. B, just being straightforward if you can to be like, I just can't deal. I can't gossip right now. It makes me feel bad. Or just don't feed it. Just, you know, er, brick wall. You're not going to be fun for her to gossip with. So she'll stop gossiping with you. Just be like, yeah, I don't really. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know them that well. So I don't really feel like I should hear their business. Sorry. But how are you? Oh, is that orange juice? Yum. Um, or another thing is if someone's that unpleasant to talk to and every time you say hi to them, you get roped into this thing, you could just be a high bye friend. You could just wave as you're leaving or pretend like you're in a hurry or be in a hurry um, and just give them like a very friendly wave as you're leaving or wait till they're in a conversation with somebody else and give them a friendly wave as you're leaving. Uh, that's what I would do. As far as tips for the guilt you feel when you have more boundaries on someone than they want, well, I don't think they're boundaries on someone. I think you have your own boundaries, right? People can deal or not deal. That's their choice. Deal or no deal. Um, you know, here are some things I like to say. They're my boundaries, not your boundaries. Or boundaries are not always popular. Um, you say your boundary and then the person gets to show you what kind of person they are by how they respond to the boundary. And sometimes you find when you tell someone no to something and they act in a way that's like totally outrageous and inappropriate, it really re- reconfirms that you did the right thing by saying no or by cutting things off. Um, you know, like if I, listener, said to you, hey, listener, um, I, I can't be hugged. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Thanks. And then your response was to try and hug me anyway. If you were like, oh, come on, but how about like this? That would show that you were more of a creep than that I was wrong for having a boundary, you know? So if you can just apply that to your scenario, whatever your boundary is with whoever you're talking about, you know, it's okay for you to have boundaries and need certain things. And you're not... As long as you're doing it because you're not trying to control anyone else, you're just kind of trying to control what happens around you. Or to, Does that make sense? Or maybe not what happens around you, but as long as your boundaries are just based in you taking care of yourself and not you trying to control someone else's actions. And if they can't abide by that boundary, then that's information. It's all just information for you and you get to make uh, and the next best decision you can with that information. All right. Thank you for your advice question. I hope it was helpful. And uh, if this advice was about me, um, I'm sorry for trying to gossip with you every day. Julia Wirtz is the author of the autobiographical comics Fart Party, Drinking at the Movies, and The Infinite Weight and Other Stories. Her latest book, Tenements, Towers, and Trash, is a giant hardcover illustrated guide to the history of New York City. I was in conversation with Julia at the Seattle Public Library last month in honor of Short Run Comics Festival with moderator and host E.T. Russian. During her reading, which is trimmed out of this conversation, Julia talks about how she focuses in on antique fixtures, doorknobs, and grates as she walks around the city with friends. She loves artifacts. Now please enjoy my conversation with Julia Wirtz. One of the questions I wanted to ask was, to start out with, was I think when I was preparing for this, actually... 
um, some of the folks from Short Run were like, well, Julia's really known by, like, kind of has two different followings. Like, she has a following for her new book and then also your Fart Party comics. And so I was reading those, which are, to me, are similar but also really different than your new book. And then, Nicole, you've been doing zines and comics for so many years that I'm curious for both of you how how you approach personal comics or personal material now versus how you used to and how you feel about that. Like, um, do you feel like you're moving away from more personal comics or do you feel like you're deepening the way that you approach personal material in comics? And then also, um, what do you do, like if you're writing about people in your life, like Nicole in your book, you write about a lot of actual people. So I'm curious, like, do you, you know, because I think in this one, you, well, I think you change their names and their uh, physical um, features a little bit. But I actually know some of the people that you've written about. And so to me in your first book, um, like it was more apparent who you were writing about. And this one, I didn't know who you were writing about. Maybe that's because I didn't know those people. So I'm curious, like, how your process of portraying your life and the people in it has changed, like, if you try to create more anonymity now and just, like, some of those kind of themes. Um, when I started doing autobiographical comics and publishing, I essentially was just publishing my own diary, lightly edited, just meaning, like, very lightly added, like, just taking out the boring parts. But, it, like, saying, like, my roommates' names, my dates' names, my friends' names. Just, just it was literally, I would take my diary, that was a visual diary, and just, like, just photocopy it, and then staple it, and put it out there with some writing in between. And so, you know, I think as time has gone on, more people have read it. Because, you know, when I started, I was like, ten people are going to read this. And now I'm like, I don't know how many people are going to read this. I don't think I understand how many people are going to read this. Um, so as time has gone by, I feel like I got more self-conscious because also I would meet people who were like, I know you. And I was like, well, you don't. Like, you know, it was that thing where somebody's like, no, we're, we're totally meant to be best friends. And I was like, I don't know anything about you. You've read an edited version of my life. And so I started getting more self-conscious about it. And then I started mistrusting my own. I don't know if this happens to you, Julia, but I started mistrusting my own diary even. Like, I would go to diary about a circumstance and be like, oh, I don't want to say too much because I don't trust my future self to not photocopy this. I was like, that bitch is ruthless, and she will photocopy anything. I don't want to reveal my true feelings or what's really going on in this diary because I don't know what will happen to it. So that happened, and then I just started getting book contracts. So now I just kind of take real things that happened, and I form them into narratives, and I make sure there's an arc, and I make composite characters, because if more people are reading my work, I don't want my work to be used as, like, a tool to, like, I don't want to use my platform as a way to hurt somebody who's been a shithead to me. So, like, in Calling Dr. Laura, there were some two girls that had conspired to steal my girlfriend and my place in a band, but I, can, I made them into one person in the book, and I switched up their details, and I switched up the way they looked so that people wouldn't be like, that's so-and-so. What an a-hole. You know, they could just be like, there's a character, and they're serving the purpose of moving the emotional story forward in this way. Um, so I feel like I try to do that, and I try to anonymize people, because I just, I don't want, I'm not actually aiming to hurt people's feelings with my work, so if I'm writing something that I think could be exposing for them, or 
make them uncomfortable or personal. I try to change as much as I can about them while still staying true to the story. Uh, actually, this is a, kind of a question for you. I'll answer it in a minute. But one thing I found interesting about Nicole's work is, uh, so she talks a lot about, I don't know if I should be like, she talks or you talk, but. The author talks. Okay. <laughs> just That's what we're doing um, in class for when we're workshopping things. Like, you'll be sitting there, I'll be like, it looks like the author has made good use of humor in this work. The, pro- the protagonist yeah. on her hero's journey. Um, but you talk about having, and I hope you don't mind my saying this, but it's in the book, but like memory issues from a car crash and having a head injury. So you would write like everything down almost as a way to know what actually happened. Yeah. And then that kind, that kind of sets the stage to like become a story, an autobiographical storyteller. So do you ever run, like, is that weird for you to look back and like read from the diaries from that time? No, I mean, honestly, so, yeah, so I got in a car accident, I had a head injury, and my memory was just not reliable, and it's, it's weird to have, like, a, any kind of head injury or brain injury, because people will come up to you and be like, I can't remember things either, and you're like, it's different, you know, like, I had the experience of living before and having a memory, and living now and having, like, I, it's different, I understand. But so I would keep a diary, and also, I, also, if you read Dr. Laura, you know, like, a lot of the things I had been told about my life were unreliable, uh, you know, or even my own experiences would get retold to be by my mom in an unreliable or different way. And so writing things down was like my only true evidence of having existed or having experiences or my only real evidence of like the thing that is happening, I know it is happening and here's how I know. And so now the years that I didn't diary because I didn't trust myself to not publish it took away those years of memories for me, kind of. Like now a lot of my memories have been supplanted by the written version or the drawn version. Like all the things from calling Dr. Laura, like my childhood anecdotes, now exist as that version. You know, because I think we've all heard the Radio Lab, which talks about how memory is elastic, and every time you recall a memory, you're taping over the old one and adding kind of your new perspective to it. So, um, so I kind of helped and hurt myself memory-wise by keeping track of things in my journal. So now those are the ones that exist, my external memories, but also then not keeping a journal because I didn't trust myself to not publish them, so those don't exist anymore. Um, so for me, I feel like uh, I kept diaries my whole life, but um, I didn't start putting them out publicly. Like when I first started, I didn't think that sort of like what you said, like only 10 people were going to read it. I thought I was just making comics for my boyfriend, basically, which so they're like, I was making these comics that were really cute and kind of stupid. And then I made up the name Fire Party because I didn't think that anyone was ever going to read them. And I put them online and like. Yeah, if you put something online, of course people are going to see it. But I didn't think about that. And this was like 2003, and it wasn't like people didn't really web comics weren't they were just starting, and I didn't really know that that was a whole world. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, I have a web comic, and people are looking at it, and a small publisher wanted to put stuff out. So my early work is really s- stupid. <laughs> it's not stupid. It's just very silly. I I I've come back around to like, it's just very naive. Like I had no idea about the medium of comics. I didn't know how to even structure a comic. I didn't know how to draw. I never went to school for art. So it's very raw. Um, And then the more I got to know about the industry and about comics, stuff got more polished. And uh, I went away from auto, but I did a couple of auto bio books and they're all very different. Like they all kind of get more polished and more storytelling and I do think that something is lost in the process of becoming more familiar with the medium that you're working in uh, and I and it, there's something kind of 
I mean, that's that's how you make a career in any industry, but there is something lost. Like, you know when your favorite band puts out an album and the first album is, like, really imperfect and raw, but you just like it so much? And then they get to know how to make music, and they start making better music, but it loses the quality of that first very uninformed album. Uh, and comics, to me, were like that. So, unfortunately, when I put this book out, uh, there's been backlash against it, um, just by like, just by like assholes on Reddit. Not even a real, not even a real. Reddit, uh, even on Facebook, just people who expect uh, either still like an autobiographical narrative, or they still expect it to be a certain way because that's how it's been for ten years. So to have like a very polished book about a city that's not about me has disappointed some people, but then it's also opened it up to a larger audience. But I kept myself out of this book mostly because I just got really sick of talking about myself and making comics about myself. Um, so I stopped, and unfortunately, kind of like what Nicole was saying, there's a lot of years that are lost to me now because I stopped making comics about it. And the because of the fallible nature of memory and how flexible it is, a lot of things have become only the story I made of it. And with Autobio, you have to uh, condense a lot of time, too, and combine people so often when I repeat a story that happened in life, I'm almost repeating the comic version as opposed to the real version, which is sort of, it's upsetting once you realize what you're, what you're doing. Um, but that's also why I take a lot of photos, because I like to actually maybe remind myself of what really happened versus the comic version of something that really happened. I was going to say that that, I was wondering if we had the same thing, where I have extensive photo albums from my whole life, because that was my way before of just, like, keeping things. And so when I went to draw, like, either of my books, I had lots of reference material from just, like, photo albums upon photo albums of those times and who was around and what our hair looked like and what our house looked like and everything. Do you have a lot of those? Yeah. Also, Instagram, to me, became uh, almost... It took... It almost replaced comics for me because you can do, like, a photo and then a caption that's kind of a joke. And then I'm like, oh, I don't need to make a comic about it because I already, like put the material out there. Um, I don't think that's actually necessarily a good thing, but it does help me remember like exactly what happened, exactly what things look like. Um, I w- <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask a question. So you were, I really like how you mapped out your walks in New York City um, and how this came from that. Like this book seems to come from that. Like you're, you writing here, like, you're having this dialogue with a friend, but really you're like, look at those doorknobs, you know, look at that building. And so um, I was wondering what were the, out of all the images you drew in your books, what were the images that were, like, the funnest to draw, the ones that you enjoyed the most, or and what were the images that were the most challenging? Because I noticed, you know, you do all these architectural drawings, and then in yours you have all these scenes of, like, punks at a punk show, which, um, as an artist and an illustrator, I know those are actually very time-consuming to do. So I'm curious if that was a pleasure or if it was a chore to do those. I think it was hard for me to draw punk Portland punks in the early 2000s because everyone is wearing a hoodie. Everyone's wearing a goddamn hoodie. Everyone looks the same. And at a certain point, I had to switch some people because I was like, there's too many white people with glasses. Like, that's how it was. But as an artist, you're like, I can't make them look that different. It just looks like all the same person. 
There's so many fucking white people with glasses in Portland in the early 2000s, all wearing a black hoodie and black pants. And it's hard to draw a black hoodie and black pants. You have a whole, I mean, like, black is really important on the page of a comic. Like, spot blacks, like solid blacks, anchor a page and tell your eye where to go. So if you says like a wad, if your page is just a wad of toner of black hoodies and black pants and black hair and black glasses, it's just like, what are you looking <laughs> I mean, maybe that sounds exciting now, it's, but it's like looking at the ocean. You're like, ah. Oh. So I, that was actually hard. And drawing crowd scenes is horrible. It's a horrible chore to draw that. Like, think about figure drawing. Everyone in this room, think about figure drawing one person looking natural at a show. Like, do they have their hands in their pockets? Are they dancing? What are they doing? And then imagine having to draw 100 of them and having to think of 100 of them. And, like, you exhaust your friend's Facebook accounts at a certain point of looking through them. And so then at a certain you're like, I don't know what this person's doing. Like, are they really doing anything different than this person? I guess. My favorite things to draw, I love drawing black shiny hair. I love using a brush or a brush pen to draw black shiny hair. Towards the end, I really enjoyed using white paint to do outlines over black stuff. So like if you're wearing a black hoodie, the outline of the hood, the outline of your, your arm crease with a white brush was really exciting. Um, I hate drawing cars. And I hate drawing, like, I hate drawing buildings. Like I hate having to like Google image search a street and then draw the street is a pain in the ass. I like drawing trees because I've made a weird cartoonist shorthand of it. That's mine. Ah, mine's the opposite. I hate hate drawing people. I hate drawing nature. Um, and I only ever want to draw buildings. Like that's that's it. Um, if you do look at my work, like I can, like I, I can draw a building very well. And but if I have to draw a person, uh, you can tell I've never taken anatomy. I've never once sat down and drawn a figure drawing, and it's very painfully obvious. Like my figures are all a little bit like, <laughs> like it's, a, it's just a little bit off. Um, and I mean, you'd think like after a decade of making comics, I'd be like, I'm just going to spend an afternoon and learn like what the human no. body looks like. But I'm like, or I'm just not. Um, so yeah, I try, which is w- weird because all my first four books are all people, and there's nothing like, that's just all about people. And my next book is all about people, um, so it's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> but drawing buildings is just very pleasing. It's a form of meditation for me to just sort of. Uh, to just like tune everything out and just be able like my like all I have to do this afternoon is like ink these straight lines and then cross out all the shadows and that's how I can just like tune everything out and focus on that and that's very pleasing for me. Um, Same. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's really we're all just like really drawing what we want to be drawing and I'm just kind of forcing the rest of it, I guess. One of my favorite things to draw a dog running, like a wiener dog running, is really a fun thing to draw. So we this would be we do a good mashup sometime, yeah, yeah. where you draw the background and you're like I loved it, and then I'll draw just like running people and wiener dogs in the front, and nature and trees. Yeah, and that's the whole book. And that's the whole book. It, we don't have to write anything. You could just write like a joke in the side, and I'll write a different joke in the foreground. And then we'll be millionaires. No, I'm on board. Bring it in. You are listening to Sagittarian Mars. With Nicole Georges and Ponyo Georges. Do you draw from memory or do you use source material for your drawings? I mean, I'm assuming you did heavily for your book of all the, all the buildings in New York. Yeah, I have to use a lot of archival photos, especially, obviously, for the, the old photos. Um, and then I try to go to the location and get a photo of what it is now, and then I just use... The photo reference, I don't like to draw uh, at location because I don't like it when people 
look at me, like in any setting pretty much, but especially if I'm drawing, I don't like it when uh, people just like stop and, and stare. So I draw from photo reference. Uh, if I have to, I'll use Google Maps and kind of cheat, but I like to uh, at least try and have a photo. So. Yeah, I do like a combo of memory and photos. It just depends how fresh the memory is and where the place is. I like to look at photos of houses and things so I can see little details that I wouldn't otherwise remember. Um, so I was told, uh, uh, I was encouraged to ask you both how the pets in your life uh, affect and um, influence your creative process when you're working. The what? The pets, your animal, pets? animal companions. How they influence it? I mean, do you have a pet? Do you have a cat? Yeah. How does your cat help you? Not, not, not at all. She's oh. useless. She's, <laughs> I know, she's cute. She's good at Instagram fodder. She sits on my lap for like two minutes out of every day. I mean, Ponyo's just like my life partner and uh, touring tour mate at this point. I don't know. How they affect it? I mean, I just did a whole book about my dog, so deeply, deeply effective. But, um... Yeah, I had a weird moment where, you know, since Calling Dr. Laura came out, we've been touring almost, I've been touring incessantly ever since, and I think about how many things this dog has seen. I think about, like, all these crazy experiences I've had, and the only witness to these crazy experiences in people and places is the dog. I wish that there was a dog pensive, and we could look at her memories and her perspectives of people and see what she's seen. I was like, I don't know if that's, like, sad or incredible that I'm, like, the only witness to this life is a brain the size of a walnut. No offense, Ponyo, but, you know, it is just weighs nine pounds. I mean, I guess also cartoon is we work from home, which can be, like, very, a very isolating experience. So it's just nice to have another thing to talk to to some extent. Yeah, I, I spend many days and months, like, completely alone working in, in my studio or in my house. And my two cats have been, like, my complete companions and company, even if they don't do anything, like sometimes they always want to sit on my lap, but you know, that's awkward for drawing. So like, like I scoot forward and then I, I just like go like that and then they'll sit behind me, you know, and they're very content and they'll sit there for hours, like slide back and smush them. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. Um, we're, we're about to get into the Q&A and I'm sure a lot of folks here are cartoonists and might have specific questions, but um, I guess my last question that I want to ask before we open it up is about um, kind of the documentary aspect of both of your both of these books, um, because like I was noticed some of the things I was noticing in your book, Julia, when you're comparing the buildings is like like you compared this one street corner in New York, you know, like seventy or eighty years ago, and then now like contemporary and you know, there were no street lamps and street posts. There was no parking meters. There was no, um, like 80 years ago, there were no curb cuts, and it wasn't wheelchair accessible to get into the building. And then the new one had a ramp. There were curb cuts. There was parking meters. There was um, street lamps. And, you know, it's like, it says so much about technology and, um, and also access and where, how buildings are and public spaces are being designed now. So I'm curious, you know, what were some of your thoughts about, like, some of the 
you know, a lot of these images you're showing, you're not, like, commenting on what they mean, you know, but I'm wondering if, like, what were some of the things you really noticed or details as you were drawing you felt were really special or important? And then with Nicole, I'm sure you've seen Portland change since you did your book, but also it's, like, I think you're capturing a lot of, um, like, a cultural moment, like a cultural moment in being queer in Portland in a certain era or being a punk in a certain era or like a cultural moment in your family or like that kind of thing. And so I'm curious how you both approach like the idea that these are could be seen as like a historical document in some ways or like capturing certain moments. Yeah, uh, for doing the then and now cityscapes in New York, I did notice, yeah, that all cities used to be incredibly unfriendly to anyone who wasn't like a, an able-bodied male, basically. Um, even for women in the olden days, what they would have to... Like, they would wear the really long, um, like, long dresses. And then there was this very common occurrence that would happen, it, in, especially in Victorian times, when they wore a lot of lace right here. And then it would, the lace would catch on fire and just kind of, like, this doesn't really have to do with cityscapes, but it's just a thing that happened. Um, and then, so a lot of women were, like, horribly disfigured um, because of this, just, like, wearing a flammable outfit. Was it because they had candlelight? Why would I was they cooking. Fire? They would, like, lean oh. forward while cooking and then, like, yeah. I wish it was them smoking. It's like, nah, and then tell a <laughs> yeah. joke, and you're like, fuck. And then, and then it goes, that would be a much, much better story. But uh, yeah, any, anyone with disabilities, like they weren't even really allowed out into the public. They would just kind of be like shut-ins. Um, and it was a very unwelcoming society, but that's, you know, that's just the natural progression of a city is how do we become more accommodating to people of various needs, to, to deaf, to blind, to disabled. And that's almost something that's, fairly new to cities and to architecture and to design. Um, and, it, and it definitely is not all the way there, but it's something that we're just more aware of as a culture, as, as opposed to back then, it was basically just how, how quickly can we build this, how quick can we get people in. And um, what I wanted to do by not talking about it, in, like I didn't put a lot of text in with the then and now almost has no text. I wanted to just re show like how a city used to be and how it is in hope that people will see the details and the change, like what the stores became. Um, mostly because I didn't want to openly address gentrification uh, in like a very overt way. I wanted people to just kind of assume it, like seeing how things have changed. Also, I was a 20-something artist living in Brooklyn. Like I was the problem, and I didn't, I didn't want to... Um, I just didn't want to open up the dialogue of it without having, I guess, I guess just I, what I see happen when people talk about it often is like it becomes like, you know, you, you're the problem or how we did it was better. People don't really, there's no wiggle room. There's no, um, I don't really know what I'm trying to say with this. Basically, I didn't want to call myself out completely and be like, I was part of it. But I just want to show what how... Some stuff has really changed, and some of it's really the same. Like, a lot of the basic things that we need, like, there are cigar stores are really common, and now we have smoke shops everywhere. Um, and, you know, markets are all still the same. I kind of just want to be like, look, a lot of stuff has changed, but not really. Like, sure, if something became an Apple store, that's very different. But if something is just still a streetscape with all the markets, it's basically just the same shit that we need. We need groceries, we need food, we need our shoes fixed, and that's kind of all still the same, even though cities have changed a lot. Did that answer it? I feel like I just...
very unclearly. I like that ranted. you didn't note, like, put your own thoughts about how things had changed because it lets each viewer pick up the details that they ascribe value to. You know, like, I'm like, ugh, fitness club, ugh, you know? But, like, if you wrote, like, it's bad that it's a fitness club, I just, I couldn't, I don't know. I feel like it's almost like the thing with comics where, like, the more general you make something, the more people can project onto it. And so by having these kind of uninflected cityscapes and just letting people, like, look at their own things and be like, look how it's changed economically or look what kind of people live here now or look how it's more accessible or, you know. Also, if someone wanted to take a really negative angle on it, I could be like, I didn't say that. I just drew the picture, so it was kind of an easy way to step away. You'd be like, I love New York fitness. Sponsor me. Hashtag SponCon. <laughs> um, I just made up the name of that fitness club. I, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not, Portland's changing a lot, and people are like, Portland, ah. Um, I just still find joy in old Portland, and people I know that lived there a long time ago live there now. Some of them do, some of them don't. It's a place where a lot of people move because they're creative people and they get creative opportunities other places. Um, there's more condos now blocking out the trees, which is unfortunate. And also I get lost sometimes there because there's so many new things. But I felt like when I moved there, for me or for my peer group, it was the salad days in a way that we didn't realize. Like working at the Independent Publishing Resource Center at like a crucial time in its development. Um, you know, and encountering like dishwasher Pete or... I don't, I don't know what fucking, like, just, like, whatever zine person who you're like, wow, that's a lot of zines they've sold. You know, I mean, like, I got to meet and uh, be surrounded by people who I find iconic now, like Craig Thompson or, you know, d different men making zines. Um, but also with the queer scene, you know, it's things that we took for granted, like our, our group of people and also, like, our group of uptight political lesbians and how many spaces we ruined for each other by being, like, those homosexual men won't let, have a safer space policy so that lesbians feel more comfortable there. And you're like, that's because they don't want us there. We'll go to a different place. Um, but just documenting all that was just kind of intrinsic to my life and my growing up. And now I look at it and I think of like as the salad days of those times. And I don't know, just like a weird continuation of the next generation that came in after riot girl culture and after queer core was at its peak. And um, just kind of how that affected all of us. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts, because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, Please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever but in the meantime thank you we appreciate your support and i look forward to saying your name on the podcast producer ponyo looks forward to it too that was ponyo's voice don't be scared bye
thank you this week to Shoshana Ruth Wechter and Mary Pinson. Well, I think uh, I think we should open it up to Q and A, and so we can um, pass the microphone around so you can answer your question and everybody can hear it. Um, who has a question? Hi. Um, thanks, first off, for sharing so much about your process. I was curious to know, um, you touched on this a little bit with long walks being a part of how you work, but uh, could you speak to what is something that you do that has, on the surface, nothing to do with your creative practice, but actually really informs the work that you make? Um, for me, I do uh, a lot of urban exploring, which is uh, exploring abandoned buildings, and it's very different from comics because it's like, I'm out uh, just in the shit, basically, like in the woods, in asbestos buildings, um, taking a lot of photos. And for a long time, I didn't think actually I had anything to do with my work. And then it turned out that like the whole time I was out doing that for two years, I was like harvesting material that then became work. And so I think especially as autobiocartoonists, almost like everything we do is part of work, even if it doesn't necessarily inform it at the moment. Um, I mean, I would, this is like a weird answer, but I think like being in therapy or being involved in 12-step programs is helpful to me. As an autobiographical cartoonist, you have to, to dip into some shit like you, and you have to stay there. You have to go into a hard experience and then stay in the hard experience for as long as it takes to write it and draw it and find importance in it. And to be able to see yourself in an experience is really valuable. So having some kind of therapeutic practice is really helpful in being able to like see myself in a situation, see my part in a situation, and not just write comics where I'm like, I'm the best. I'm the best. Everyone around me is so mean to me, but I'm awesome. Um, so that's helpful to me. You know, I don't know what else. Doing weird things and being part of, you know, I don't hang out with a majority of cartoonists. When I'm at things like this, it's like a family reunion where I'm like, cartoonists, oh my God, my people. It's like Harry and the Hendersons. But um, the rest of the time, I hang out with people that are artists in different ways. And so I get to experience lots of different storytelling mediums and fields. And like by teaching comics, I'm constantly reminding myself of um, the important things in storytelling and like reminding myself of just the basic tenets of comics and visual layout and clarity and composition and calligraphy. Um, and then by being part of other people's practices, like seeing like musicians or, um, you know, like people that have TV shows or make movies or do directing or this or that, I get to just have story implanted in my mind through lots of different means and seeing what things we all have in common and which ones I can take into comics. I think that's value. People that I meet that are like, I only read comics and then I want to make comics. I'm like, all right. I, I just, I find that like literature and other forms of art really help inform my process. I would agree with that. Also, having friends outside of your medium is very helpful. I don't, it doesn't necessarily address the question, but like, if you get, I feel like with people who, who get very uh, insular with their world, when their world becomes very small and only becomes only about the medium they're working in, um, then you kind of, it's just like a weird big circle jerk. So it's like nice to have friends and experiences outside of your world, basically, just to keep it from becoming too closed off. So, yeah. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, influences uh, for both of you. Um, for Julia, I, uh, other artists, comics artists who have dealt with architecture and city spaces. I, I, your work, for example, reminds me of um, uh, Robert Crumb's Brief History of America. That's what it's called. Or Ch uh, Chris Ware, um, people like that. Uh, and, and, and for Nicole, 
um, the very you know rich history of autobiographical comics. Um, Justin Green, uh, Harvey P. Carr, Phoebe Gleckner. I'm just wondering, like, to what extent do you guys feel yourself engaging with these these works, or are they for you irrelevant? Um, for architectural stuff, I actually looked at a lot of French children's books. Um, I can't I can't oh, think of any like The Lion in Paris. Yeah, yeah I got yeah. that when I was in France. I was like, I'm alone in Paris. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's just I don't know the way that um. The French draw buildings is very is very different. Also, uh, Richard Scarry was a big influence on me. Like the way he just I used to read his book, and he draws a lot of like trucks and cars and like little city things. And um, so yeah, it was a surprising amount of children's books. Uh, there's also an artist in San Francisco named Paul Madonna who draws a whole lot of San Francisco stuff. And I've been a fan of his since I was a teenager, basically. So he was hugely influential. Um, but otherwise, I don't tend to look at a whole lot of architectural drawing stuff. It's mostly just drawing like exactly what I what I see. I'm more inclined to read personal narrative, I think, than I am to look at building stuff. That's our collaboration. It's a kid's book. It's like a lion in Paris, but it's like, I don't know what it is, a hedgehog in Brooklyn. Or, I don't know what it is, but you draw all the buildings, and I'll draw some kind of animal having an adventure or misadventure through them. Okay, yeah. Great, done. I a Great. book, though. <laughs> Just stamped that. Um, Phoebe Gleckner and Linda Berry um, have been huge influences on me. Queer cartoonists, um, you know, like Alison Bechdel, our work it doesn't really correlate except for that it's tragic comedy about our families and we're gay. But like having people like her or Howard Cruz or Jennifer Kim or like just or, um, Mary Wings or, you know, women from the 70s and and 80s and people seeing people who worked really hard in obscurity because they were gay and they were you know outside of the realm of normal comics but seeing them keep going and persevere and then have some kind of success or longevity is really valuable to me career-wise to be able to look at because you know Allison made comics for 25 years that 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 comics at large wasn't paying attention to but lesbians were paying attention to and then Fun Home came out and comics was like oh hey Allison we know you uh, you know, like, they kind of came around and, like, you know, like, the year that Fun Home came out, it didn't even win the Ignatz Award, which is crazy. It's the craziest thing I ever heard. But so, like, people's careers inspire me, and then people's actual work and vulnerability inspire me. Um, and I feel really lucky to be in comics and have it be such a small world that I get to rub elbows with these people or know them up close and personal and be able to tell them your work meant a lot to me uh, is is huge and I feel really grateful to exist at the same time as a lot of my heroes and have them be really nice accessible people who are still making work Nicole I heard that you are working on getting some of your work made into movies and uh, Julia you've written about um, sort of a process of getting your autobio cartoons into, made into a movie that didn't really pan out but both of you have experience with that sort of process so um, if you could just talk about the difference in similarities between this mic, um, between your autobio comics and the um, like film process, and sort of conceding creative power, making a transition between mediums like that. I'm 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 not. I'm just at the beginning stages of anything happening with my books getting made into movies, but um, I don't know. I you know I moved I moved. 
I, I've been in L.A. working. I'm not totally out of Portland. I still am like, I'm just going to go get a sack of money and drag it back to Portland. Um, but I went to L.A. You know, I was working on developing Calling Dr. Laura into a TV show. And at first I felt some qualms where I was like, they want me to change so many things or fictionalize things. It's not the same. And um, my friend Michelle T. is a writer, and her mom lives in Massachusetts and is a hard woman. And she, I was talking to Michelle, and I was like, what do I do? They want me to change it. They want me to blah, blah, blah. And she was like, and her mom was like, what did her mom say? Well, Michelle was like, essentially, like, the book you made is a precious object, and it exists in its form, and it always will. And her mom was like, what did her mom say? She was like, if you're into telling the truth, you don't belong in Hollywood. She just, her mom had some, like, hard-ass advice that was like, that's what they do there. And I was like... All right, all right, I understand. I understand now. I was like, you know, your book is one thing, your movie is a different thing. If you want your book to be made into a movie, you need to, like, be able to seed control and let things happen to it that are supposed to happen to it. And I feel fine with that. I feel great about that. I mean, I just, yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually that deep in it, so I don't think I can fully speak to this. And, like, if you asked me in a year, I would have an entirely different answer. But, um, yeah, I think once I thought about that hard advice, and I was like, yeah, you know what? I have a similar sort of view on it. Um, I didn't end up making a TV show out of my early stuff. That that was the the process we had begun. Um, I mean, for me, that was God. It was almost like ten years ago, and I didn't like. I was still having a very like almost visceral reaction to the industry itself, where they would be like, "Oh, Julie, we really liked your book." And I'm like, "That's not my name." <laughs> Julie, you're the best. This was incredible. Yeah. Or just, and then I would, you know, be like, I'm going to see if they really read it, so I'm going to ask, like, a question. Like, I was just being really precious about it. And, yeah, the more I've known people in the industry now, I, I would have a totally different approach. I would be like, I already made my, my, my work is done. Uh, someone wants to give me money to make a horrible thing out of it? Sure. Fuck, yeah, give me that money. I would like to make more books with that money. Um, unfortunately, no one's really knocking it. That's not really an offer I'm entertaining at the moment. But so I said, so I said no to the, also they were like, oh, your junkie brother is such a funny character. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> That's, I don't know. I can say that, but I don't really want anyone else to be calling my brother my junkie brother. Um, and then I had another studio want, they wanted to make a reality show based on my urban exploring stuff. And I have no interest in putting this on, on television. Like really? I just... I do, like, I'll, I'll write for something, but, like, as soon as someone sticks a camera in my face, I'm just like, oh, God, I got to take a shit. I got to go. Like, I just, I mean, I could maybe change that, but at the time, I was just like, oh, I don't really, that's not of interest to me. Again, I should have done it, though. Um, if anyone is out there and someone comes knocking on the door with an opportunity, just maybe say yes to see where else it might lead. I feel like I should have said yes just to be like, I mean, even though, you know, there's like a 2% chance your TV show will get made, maybe you'll meet other people along the way. It'll just open up your world. Um, so I do wish I had said yes to a lot of those things, but I think that it's fine that I didn't because I, I did other things. But, yeah, because I didn't make a TV show, I guess I can't really – I have, no, like, no, no hot gossip about the hot industry. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's interesting to me as a cartoonist. It's, it, I know some people have different feelings about, like, the correlation between – uh, comics and movies, where people are like, it's not the same. Don't talk about it as a shot, Alec Longstreth. Um, but I, I think it's really interesting to read about screenwriting and to read books about screenwriting because it kind of boils down the essentials of visual storytelling in a way that I think is very applicable 
to comics. And so it helps me with each panel or page being like, is this panel moving the story forward? If it's not, why is it here? If the answer is just because I want to draw that thing, that's fine. But I at least know that, and I'm consciously making decisions about where I am and I'm not wasting space or time and what I could do to make the story more interesting or to get across the thing I'm trying to get across. Also, just to put this out there, television and movies is an industry I'm very interested in. So if anyone here wants to make a movie, I am free. So both of you have these autobio comics that you have this particular like avatar cartoon self. And I'm curious if, um, and I mean, you have your, your childhood self and then your kind of mid-20s self. And I'm curious, um, has your kind of self-avatar um, been fixed throughout the trajectory of your doing autobiocomics? Auto or, like, are there critical times in either your self-development or your artistic development that it's shifted? and Or has it just been sort of a natural arc over time as you've developed in your work? I'm curious. You mean, like, visually or character-wise? Or? Uh, I'm thinking more visually, but if character-wise you have insightful things you want to share, I would love to hear it. I want to add on to that, Julia. I want to know how you're different from your character. Well, visually, when I first created my character, like I said earlier, I had no idea it was going to be like a thing. Um, and I had read the Charles Schultz quote that was sort of what Nicole references earlier. It's like the most simple a thing is, the more a reader can project themselves into it. Uh, so I was like, oh, I'm just going to create like a really simple character. Um, and mostly it was out of laziness of drawing. Like I don't, if you if you draw bangs, you don't have to learn how to draw forehead. Uh, so I was just like, bangs. I've like just make bangs and short hair, and it was just easier to to draw it that way for me. Um, but I am now stuck in this weird like in between time where I don't want to draw myself like that anymore. Um, especially with more serious, uh, like my next book has a lot more serious stuff in it, and it kind of. I almost like see it from a removed point of view now where I look at it and I see this like very cartoony character saying these things and it just kind of seems weird to me. So I'm not really sure if I should change it or if I should leave it the same or if I should just, if I'm I'm probably overthinking it and I should just not care. Um, But it was mostly an accident from, like we just wasn't really thinking it through, I guess. But yeah, people do not expect me to look like this. I guess when they like, like this, design. yeah, <laughs> like all this. It's true. You look so different from your character. Um, I don't know how my characters changed. I don't think. I mean, I gave myself better hair as a teenager than I actually had as a teenager. I, I gave myself bangs throughout this whole book because every single month of my life, when I have PMS, I text my friend and I'm like, "I think I need bangs," and she's like, "Do you have PMS right now?" Like. Oh, yeah. She's like, don't cut your hair when you have PMS. So I gave myself vicarious bangs because I wish that I had bangs this whole time. Um, I think that my, I don't know how my characters changed. I know that, you know, I wrote about this in Fetch, but people used to draw, I'm sure people draw about you too. People would draw about me and their autobio comics and make me like way more of a bitch and just like way more like, it was just like a, just like a very bitchy, just like, you're stupid to like every man. And I don't know if it was like men around me who were like, oh, she's gay now, you know, like feeling like scared. And so they needed to draw me as like an evil person or like, I I just have had men draw about me with literally jagged teeth, me hitting them, which I don't do. And with veins coming out of my neck and always saying something shitty. And these are real, like I have multiple, and some of my friends have like apologized to me for that. Like drawing me like with like spit coming out of my mouth, screaming at them with jagged teeth. 
I'm like a caricature of a feminist or like a caricature of a bitchy woman or like a man-hating lesbian. Ah! And so I, I got, you know, I've had weird moments with that, with other people, how other people have drawn me over time. And I've kind of like retreated from those people a little bit so they can't draw me anymore. Um, but in myself, I don't know. I feel like my character probably has gotten more emo over time. Like I'm drawing about harder things in these books than I drew about in Invincible Summer. Invincible Summer was like, I'm getting coffee and going on a date, you know, and saying, so I have too many roommates. And this is like, I have too many roommates and my world's falling apart. So I don't know, I just, but I, I think that that's probably my character is a little bit different than that because I actually do have a lot of buoyancy and joy in my life that don't have any kind of story behind them, so they're not going to make it into a book. Um, but I don't know how my character's changed other than that. I don't know. I like that other people would draw. Like I think when people, when people, other people draw someone who draws themselves a lot, they tend to project a lot into it. Um, I actually really like, I guess, I'm kind of loath to call it like fan art, but I really do like it when people will like draw an interaction they had with me, but I'm always a little bit disappointed in like how well they capture my resting bitch face because like my face at rest can be very unpleasant and I realize that and then when people, I'll like read a blog post about someone maybe going up to a table and just being like, she looked really mad and I'm just like, that's just my face. Or they'll they'll draw it and it looks like so if you guys ever draw me, like throw me a bone, man, make me look nice. <laughs> like I'm gonna draw a picture of you and draw like shiny spots or like a Mongo character or something you know, where you're like Yeah, obviously that's not how it really is. Re- your resting face. I see this every day, but it's like <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's always fun for me. Yeah, I like cartoon crossover, but at a certain point I was like, This is other people projecting their kind of like man hating lesbian shit onto me. It's not about you. It's about about them. It's about them. It's kind of with all autobio comics. How people talk about you and how you affected their life is more about them. Well, that was a great note to end on. And um, I just want to thank both of you and thank everybody for coming out to this event. Um, uh, As Abby announced earlier, this is not the end of Short Run. There are still more events going on this week that are part of Short Run Fest. So thanks for coming out and supporting Short Run this year. Keep coming to the events. And um, Short Run also does programming all year round for cartoonists and local artists. So please keep checking that out. And then the festival, of course, again next year. So thank you. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.